Hello and welcome back to Moondari Legends. This is your host, Michael Stone. Before we get into today's episode, I do want to just quickly remind you there are three things you can do to help support the show uh, if you're enjoying it. Uh, first of all, you can leave a rating uh, and or a comment or a review on the platform that you are using. This really helps people know what they're getting into and uh, what they can expect from the show as they're uh, picking what shows to listen to. Additionally, you can also join us on Patreon.com. If you look for Mundaria Legends on Patreon.com or use the link in the description, you can help directly support the costs uh, of this show for as little as $3 a month and ensure that you'll always have ad-free access to all episodes of this show. And then finally, the most important thing that you can do to help this show is simply to just let other people know about the show and what you like about it. Tell your friends and family. Now, for today's episode, we are going to dip in a little bit to the lore and the history of Mundaria. Uh, I do get a lot of questions uh, about this with the, the setting of it. And there are some other uh, fantasy authors and fantasy podcasts that have an entire episode dedicated to just this context. A lot of the context for the show you can find on the website. And although it's not necessary to enjoy the story of the show, it does uh, help you enjoy it a little bit more. <clears throat> and uh, for those of you that are listening today, I actually have a few little uh, nuggets, a few little uh, surprises uh, if for you, some teasers as to what you might be able to expect in this upcoming season. So uh, hang tight and listen, because I'm going to give away a few little secrets about Mundaria and uh, where we might be going. So... <clears throat> um, First of all, I do want to talk uh, a little bit about the, the history of Mundari and what's been uh, going on. Uh, if we look all the way back to the beginning of uh, this world's uh, history, uh, the very, very beginning period of this world is called the Dawn Times. And when I was uh, drafting uh, uh, this history, I suppose... With the dawn times, with the, these early, early, early uh, periods of, of the history, I was inspired possibly by a video game called Injustice 2. Uh, those of you that have uh, played that game know there's a bonus optional ending in that game where uh, the Joker wins and where the good guys, uh, with their optional endings, when they win, they get to free these alien civilizations that have been imprisoned in the spaceship. And typically the bad guys do something horrible. The Joker actually frees these, uh, these alien civilizations, but he just dumps them all onto planet Earth and in an entirely random haphazard fashion. Then he just sits back in this alien ship that he's taken over as he watches these confused, paranoid races uh, just start laying waste to each other. And that's kind of what the Dawn Times are like uh, in Mundaria. It's a highly unusual situation where you have multiple sapient races all together, uh, tightly packed uh, into this planet. And in keeping with what we sadly know to be true with actual history, when highly different people are uh, tightly packed together like that, 
people tend to distrust and hate whatever looks or thinks differently than them. And so the dawn times were really, really rough. Lots of wars, anarchy, uh, squabbling. Uh, you get the picture. <clears throat> that is when we have a character called the Dayan show up. And uh, if you've listened to the show, there's been a number of references to him, but not too many direct explanations about him other than what I've uh, put up on my website. And I'm not going to reveal too much uh, about this character because of his obvious importance in the overarching plot uh, of this whole podcast. <clears throat> what I can say uh, is that uh, his name is directly inspired by the Latin word for God in that he is a godlike being to the Mandarians. He comes from a plane of existence where time is meaningless, where the past, present, and future are all one. So he comes to this plane of existence where Mundaria is, and he is utterly bewildered and intrigued by the concept of mortality, of time. Uh, it, it really intrigues him where from moment to moment in mortality, sapient beings are not sure exactly of what is coming next. And that is a phenomenon that is completely new to this godlike being who just knows the whole story of his uh, existence in this other plane. And when it comes to this one, the, the, the future is much more of a mystery because nothing is set in stone. And eventually, as he begins to see some of the problems on Mundaria, and he tries to make sense of all of these different shifting, swirling uh, futures that he sees in his uh, vision of the future, he begins to perceive a really grave threat of some sort to Mundaria. And it is because of that that this Dayan decides to help the people of Mundaria and to give them his power, the God Shards, which uh, I'll go over in a little bit more detail uh, later on in the episode. <clears throat> but what happens, unfortunately, is after he gives away all of his power, he is made mortal uh, in doing so. And he does die. The exact circumstances of that death are really, really juicy details that I can't go over right now. That's not one of the nuggets that I'm going to be sharing. I'm going to be sitting on that for quite some time. But I will, over the co course of these many seasons that I've planned for this podcast, just drop a few breadcrumbs uh, to those who are more careful listeners about who the day in was and exactly how uh, these things went down. Anyway, uh, in any case, this God, this day in dies and we are left with a character called the dread King. And uh, he's one of course that I've mentioned a few times uh, in this uh, first season. And I've revealed a little bit about what he did and what he was capable of. But uh, like with much of the early history of Mandaria, and at the risk of repeating myself again, I'm not going to reveal too much about him. I am going to take one risk here, though, 
and give maybe one little clue, one little bit of clarification, and that is why he was so powerful. At one point, this uh, man, who would later be called the Dread King, was actually one of the Dan's most trusted friends. And he was deemed so wise and kind that he was given one of the most sought-after aspects of the Dayans' godhood. And that was his power over life and death. Unfortunately, after the Dayan dies, this man eventually becomes a tyrant in his own right, who uh, sought to impose his own kind of perfect society on Mundaria. Um, At this point, uh, the Dread King... Uh, I draw inspiration for him uh, from a number of different sources, uh, but uh, I think most significant here with how he ruled was a little bit more like uh, Robespierre of the French Revolution, who himself said something along the lines that there is no virtue without terror. Sure, uh, people who follow the law were uh, completely safe uh, and stuff, but... uh, If you didn't, the Dread King was not very forgiving. The trick is that this Dread King can't die by the virtue of the power he has, which he is in no hurry to give away. So as his reign begins to span over a thousand years, the the riddle for a lot of Mundaria is, how do you kill a god? And... That is where eventually they unite for perhaps the first and maybe only time in the planet's history to forge a weapon that can do just that, the Banishing Blade. And uh, the the trick here is that uh, these rebels, they had to find a way to kill an immortal being, one, but also deal with the fact that because he does have that power over life and death, he does have what is called death sight, where if he can see you, if he is anywhere close to you and he's aware of you, you can die uh, if he just wills it on a whim. Uh, But they do come up with a very ingenious plan uh, with uh, how to circumvent that. More on that later. But uh, what uh, happened was they were able to get someone close enough to strike him down with the Banishing Blade. It's a weapon that took uh, the talents of all the best wielders of each god shard to forge. And so, uh, of course, this is a trope of fantasy that I am using here, right? uh, There's always this uh, really uh, super magical object. I mean, Tolkien had the ring, Harry Potter had the hallows, and Mundaria here has the banishing blade. I have a full page of notes dedicated to exactly how it works and how each god shard was used in forging the blade, but again, if I was to share that here, that would spoil some really good plot twists that I am planning on in the future, so I'm going to stay mum about that for now. What I can say is that the people who forged the blade called it the Banishing Blade because that it it was their most desperate hope to, to just banish this tyrant forever, 
uh, from all existence, to just get rid of him completely. The trick is that once the Dread King is gone, and it is realized that this banishing blade, partly due to how it was forged, vastly augments the capabilities and scope of what any one wielder can do, it becomes this prize of prizes to battle and rage and fight over, which, of course, leads us to the Throne Wars. These wars were fought to determine which faction and which leader should take the throne that the Dread King left behind. I justify the emergence of these wars by pointing to history. I mean, it, yeah, it seems a little bit weird. They spent all this time trying to get rid of the Dread King in order to bring peace, but that's the trick about history is whenever you see a society that has been ruled by an absolutist autocracy or anything like that for as long as anyone can remember, uh, most of the time you don't have a people that is necessarily ready to unite peacefully and build a happy little democracy. What keeps empires together is fear and force. And when the source of that fear and force is gone, people don't tend to stay together. They fracture, they break apart. And what makes the Throne Wars a particularly nasty version of this phenomenon, however, and this is uh, another little... Uh, secret here that I haven't uh, revealed elsewhere quite yet is that the violence wasn't limited to just international conflict on Mundaria, but it was also intranational, or uh, rather there were internal conflicts as well, where some of the most bitter and savage bloodbaths were between members of the same family. Why this was is going to be a secret that I've been sitting on, but I think uh, this next season in season two is going to be the right time when we have some of the characters learn this terrible, horrible uh, truth. And so that's basically the story of, uh, of a Mundaria right up to the start of season one, where Globally, everyone has been rebuilding from the Throne Wars, where a lot of the past's knowledge has been lost, and uh, they're just beginning to see different nations reach out to each other again uh, for trade and to uh, try to uh, reestablish uh, the world uh, as it uh, might have been, as it should have been. Now, uh, if you haven't uh, listened to Season 1, uh, I'd suggest uh, going back to the season one prologue, uh, and you can begin there uh, to take up the story. Uh, for now, I am going to switch over to the races of Mundaria and talk a, not about each one since there's a whole bunch, but just to highlight a few where I've had a, uh, some uh, people ask a few more questions about uh, why this and why that. So uh, first of all, I will fully admit to having been uh, influenced uh, by uh, having dabbled a little bit in D&D. Uh, I do include elves, dwarves, trolls, and the like in mostly their stereotypical fashion, albeit with a few twists, uh, some of which are about to be revealed in Season 2, where I can say we will introduce dwarves for the first time. Um, 
I have also included a few other uh, very stereotypical races from fantasy, like the merfolk. Though I have strayed from their uh, typical portrayal uh, a little bit in established literature. I hope this doesn't give away too much, but uh, I can say that uh, for the merfolk culture, how they are, how they act, and especially with like King Aglam and a lot of the higher ups in the merfolk culture, I've essentially made them the ancient Greeks of Min- of uh, Mundaria. And so if you know your history, you'll hopefully have a very fun time uh, seeing all the parallels I have hidden in the story so far. And you'll likely be able to deduce much of what is coming for the merfolk in this next season as well. So uh, it, it, those of you that like to uh, try to predict and uh, chart these things out, uh, there's a little uh, clue for you uh, to use. As far as the Draconids are concerned, they are Mundaria's version of the Dragonborn. Uh, those of you that have played D&D are probably a little bit more familiar with these. Uh, though in my uh, iteration of these uh, Dragonborn, I've the way that I've tried to describe them in the series so far they are more like scaly demons, very much half human, half dragon, but minus the long snouts. And it has been an interesting experiment so far. Uh, my goal was cr- was uh, to try to create a race of people who look like demons, but aren't of necessity demonic uh, in nature. And uh, I I think we largely accomplished uh, that goal in this uh, first season. Uh, Now, uh, to get on with uh, some of these other races, I am excited uh, to start getting uh, into some of these other races that we have up on the website, like uh, the Minotaurs, the Centaurs, and the Tree Folk. Uh, uh, We will be getting to them eventually. Uh, But I think I'll wrap up this discussion today on races in Mundari with perhaps the most unique race, uh, which uh, might be the most novel concept for most readers uh, when they're looking at the different races uh, uh, that I have uh, in this series. And this uh, most unique race that I'm talking about uh, on the list is the Malinat. And so as is the case with many, but not all of the names that I have generated for Mundaria, the Malinat, it, that's a Latin-based name, uh, which I take to mean wrongly formed. These guys, this was not a race that uh, was around uh, during the time of the day, and they are relatively new. They instead emerged as the result of a horrible punishment that the Dread King had his loyal orc plague mancers, or uh, workers of disease-based magic, if you will, uh, these were the orcs who unleashed this uh, horrible punishment on the Malinat, on, on this uh, a, a group of people. This disease that has stricken the Malinat, who were previously just human, infects their bodies with a particularly nasty, virulent pathogen that attempts to reshape the victim's body into that of a large insect. And originally, with the first several hundred victims, uh, the virus did a fairly good job. I mean, it's a pretty painful experience, and 
uh, I mean, scientifically speaking, there's a lot of heat generated with uh, the rapid uh, mutations. Uh, they're, uh, it, they grow very ravenous. They eat a whole bunch uh, as this happens and as uh, uh, it, their body undergoes this change. Uh, but uh, the problem with viruses, of course, is that they uh, mutate rather quickly. And so while the, the, the first few victims that were infected, the first few hundred or so, uh, were much more like uh, large insects, everyone else afterwards has been infected by the mutated viruses, which just transform people into asymmetrical, grotesque, part human, part insect horrors. Uh, it's all misshapen. Uh, and every single individual is infected in a completely uh, different way. And so uh, everyone in the society is utterly unique. The virus, fortunately, can only be transmitted by a bite or a sting from a malana. You have to have that direct contact uh, with the pathogen. Uh, it is not an airborne sucker. It does uh, rely on... Uh, saliva or blood uh, for that transmission. So as long as you can kill a Malinat before it gets too close to you, you're safe. As far as what Malinat society is like and how they behave and how aggressive they are, that'll be something else we explore in season two, as that will be uh, one of the big uh, developments that we have coming up. The Malinat are coming in season two in the storyline. Uh, so uh, lastly, uh, one of the big questions uh, that I get asked about is how the magic in Mundaria works. Is this just a willy-nilly everyone, uh, everyone who's a wielder has magic and they can just do stuff? Or are there some hard and fast rules? Uh my answer to that is, yes, there are some very hard and fast rules. I am not in any hurry, though, to explain uh, all of those hard and fast rules. Uh, beyond that, I do have a consistency. There is a method uh, to the madness. And the god shards do provide the foundation for every magical thing that has happened or can happen in Mundaria. That's really the only source of magic that we get uh, in this world. And so if there is something fantastical going on, it's because of some kind of use of a god shard. It might be a very creative use of that uh, god shard, but ultimately, these god shards just grant their bearers control over a certain aspect of nature. <clears throat> and so uh, the 10 god shards listed on the website include uh, the four typical elements. You have water, fire, earth, and air, three of which were uh, uh, featured pretty heavily in the first season. Uh, and of course, the dwarves coming into season two, we'll see a little bit more of the earth-wielding uh, uh, magic. But uh, my interpretations of those four elements uh, are kind of... Uh, 
well, I, I suppose I should say my use of those four elements as well as all the other uh, God shards, why I have them divvied out this way, I draw inspiration for uh, this magic system from the different forces of nature that historically have been worshipped in one form or another in Earth's history. And that was uh, one of the creative questions I asked myself as I was drafting uh, the idea of Mundaria uh, so many years back is what a world would look like if these natural forces, which most of the time were beyond the comprehension of our earliest ancestors, what would happen if we gave these natural forces to mortals? Now, besides the fact that these god shards are inherited from one generation to the next, there is another mechanic about them that has been entirely forgotten by the world in the aftermath of the throne wars. It's a very simple mechanic, but the implications of this particular way in which uh, people inherit these god shards and how that works out is a huge secret that I have been sitting on, and it's going to be, perhaps, once it's revealed, this will be maybe the dominating force of the overall story of Mundaria in this next season and moving forward. So, uh, be sure uh, to listen next week when we begin season two. So before we wrap up today, uh, there's been a few other questions that I've received about how the whole character suggestion creation thing goes. Uh, because that's one aspect that, that uh, at, at times is uh, a, a little confusing for people. And so I do want to make sure that there's some clarity on this point. My goal with these character suggestions, with this kind of audience-based input is to allow as many people as possible the chance to see themselves, whether it's an idealized version of themselves, an honest version of themselves, or if they prefer a darker version of themselves in an epic fantasy story. Other times, as I've talked with and gotten to know some of the audience members who have submitted characters, it isn't necessarily based on their personality at all, but just a fun character idea that they'd love to see featured in a story. And that kind of suggestion works too. Some character suggestions I have received have literally been a single sentence long. And I can work with single sentence ideas for a character. That's actually how we got Zeru. Uh, he was just uh, a couple of short phrases, but uh, the prompt was so good, I just couldn't pass it up. And so uh, that's uh, why he played such a big role uh, in this uh, first season and uh, moving forward. And uh, other character suggestions that I've gotten have been, of course, much longer. I've uh, received like Google Doc essays with very intricate mechanics for a character suggestion. And I can work with those, too. And that's how we actually got Archchief Tsalost uh, in this last season. So the length of the character uh, suggestion uh, it, it doesn't matter here. Really, it's just if you have an idea uh, for a character that you would like to see in a fantasy story, I'd love uh, to hear it so that we can include it in 
this world that is being crafted. Now, I have to admit to a little trepidation at first when I thought of this idea, how I might have difficulty writing a cohesive, logical story when I'm essentially letting the other chefs have their say in how these stories go. But I have found it to be a richly rewarding uh, and instructive experience for me as a writer. Incorporating these suggestions from the audience has pushed me to really think carefully as I write and to really try to expand my creativity to make it all work and fit together. And in the end, it has made it so that I am enjoying the story much more as I'm writing it. As I basically uh, put these characters from these uh, various different sources into the different roles of the plot, and then I, as a writer, almost just sit back, watch the mess they make as they interact with each other, and then I just write up the incident report, and that's what ends up in the uh, episodes, uh, so to speak. So I encourage you, although I do have season two mostly outlined and we're uh, good to go, I still do have room for a few more character suggestions uh, if we do get a few more. And so this is your chance to get a a, a character suggested uh, for this next season and get them in to uh, some of these episodes quicker. So that kind of wraps up today, I think, the uh, discussion of what I have uh intended at least for this uh, fictional world uh, that has been created. And I hope that it did answer a lot of the questions that I've been receiving uh, from you, the audience. So I encourage you, uh, do get a character made uh, if you can within this next little bit. You can uh, just email me. That should be in the description. You can also contact me on social media and give me a suggestion that way. Social media links are uh, down below too. Or uh, you can go to MundariaLegends.com and there's a button right there where it says create a character. And uh, that can give you everything that you need uh, to suggest a character for the show. So, uh, so uh, thank you for listening today. And do remember, leave a rating. Join us on Patreon. Uh, every little bit helps. Uh, with this show and finally remember too that the best way to enjoy a story is to share it with someone else so tell a friend uh, about the show and that will do so much and I appreciate all of you who have been sharing I've been seeing so much growth uh, these uh, past few weeks especially uh, with uh, how many people are, are sharing this and so thank you Thank you so much. And so look forward to next week, Thursday, at uh, 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, when we kick off Season 2 of Mundaria Legends. If you haven't listened to all of Season 1 yet, you'll want to get caught up, because uh, Season 2, as I have uh, teased throughout today's episode is going to include a few big uh, secrets uh, about Hundaria. So, we'll see you uh, this time next week, hopefully. 
And until then, please have a safe, happy, and productive week.